Welcome to the Very Good Real Estate Podcast with your host, Derwin Kinston. Think real estate is only for the rich? Think again. Don't know diddly squat about real estate? Even better. Not in line to receive a trust fund? Neither did our guests. Sounds like this podcast is for you. We interview guests that started out just like you. Come learn, build, and grow with the Very Good Real Estate Podcast. So we have Nick Green, my guy Nick Green, on the podcast today. And Nick, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. So when Nick is a jack-of-all-trades. He's a realtor. He's a property manager. And he flips and does Airbnb. So I look forward to hearing all everything that you're doing. So Nick, welcome to the podcast. And the first thing we're going to start off with is just give me your your background. What What's your education in and how did you get to be Nick Green wearing all the hats? What inspired us and kind of just take us through the education to that part? Thanks for having me always. Um, so I grew up in a pretty low income household. Um, I had a very odd, um, I guess, growing up in the case that I, I was born and brought into the uh, planet Earth um, more wealthy. My father had a very successful business in the late 90s and early 2000s. And my parents separated when I was pretty young. And um, I slowly watched a decline. His business ended up failing. Eventually, um, he declared bankruptcy. And so, you know, I saw I saw a very reversed side of the American dream than most people see. And that was, you know, I, I experienced um, at a very young age what wealth was like. And then, you know, as I matured and became a contributing member of the family, I was then witnessing what it was like to have a low income household um, with basically living primarily with my mother, who, you know, under one salary and several kids had to contribute to the entire family. And um, seriously, I, I cannot extend the appreciation for my mom in that case, because even though I did become a contributing member of the family at 14, I wasn't really aware of what it took to, you know, run a family. She was never fully honest with me about, you know, where we were monetarily growing up, but we always had food on the table. My money, I suspect, went to our housing mostly. Um, and so I had a very skewed mentality. So I experienced wealth and I knew kind of what I wanted. And I always had people in my family that, you know, experienced wealth and ha carried that mentality, even though at that point in time, we were low income. And so you know, coming from that, when I came into the working world at 14, I was just really determined on, you know, making it and experiencing what I envisioned as the American dream as a kid and kind of experience, I guess, that nostalgia and support and reliance and reliability of a lifestyle. And so um, I did not go to college. Unfortunately, I didn't have the pleasure to, and I eventually will. I love the idea of future education. But um, my goal really was just, you know, learn an aspect of the world that would contribute to being a betterment of my life. And so that really wasn't working at restaurants or anything, even though that's where I started. I started in restaurants when I was 14. But when I uh, turned 17, I had the opportunity to work in solar part-time. Um, I, I wasn't out of high school at that point, so I was working seasonally. And um, I became a solar installer. And so the benefit of going to the trades in my, my mind was, you know, the trade is something that people their entire lives contribute to and the trades is also something that people grow out of in an essence of becoming owner occupant and so um 
that's kind of where I started. And so for the first five years of my professional life, exiting high school and, you know, going into full-time work was within the trades. And so I was doing residential, I was doing commercial, I was seeing large infrastructure, and I was also seeing, you know, the aspect of large companies that were experiencing massive growth spurts at the time. I'm not sure if you recall, but the solar industry between 2015 and 2020, really, that was its that was its prime in terms of uptick and, um, you know, change in legislature and everything else. So lots of people were investing their time, their experience. The government was investing a ton of time and money into the solar industry. And so I was able to see kind of the boom from an adolescence in, in the sense of, or in the sense of, you know, my professional life. And so go ahead. That is amazing. First of all, um, thank you for sharing that. I, I want to stop you for a quick question. Um, a quick question before you continue. A lot of people are under the misconception that if you don't go to college, your life is over. I'm not going to make money. How did you know? I guess a. How did? What was the thing that inspired you not to get stuck in that rut? Because I've met people. They'll say, "Oh, Darwin, I didn't go to college, so you know, I can't. There's no way I can make money, or I can't really create for myself. I'll be stuck making minimum wage or a low dollar amount." How did you know that all these things are a possibility? Is it just because you were working in all these uh, these things with your hands and you realize, oh, there's an opportunity to make money? Did someone tell you? Um, and when when you were in high school, did you never want to go to college, or were you like, no, this I don't have the money, I, I, I'm still going to make a way? So I mean, I'm, it's, it's really amazing that you, you, the mindset that you have and from the environment you come from, because a lot of people don't aren't, aren't born with that at all. Totally. Um, I think the decision was made for me, in a sense, in in the aspect of I, there wasn't a situation I had applied for a lot of, uh, I grew up in Charlottesville. And so I um, always idolized the idea of going to University of Virginia, UVA, um, Virginia Tech was another option. But in my, the sites of what I wanted to do, um, schooling was something that I wanted to do. And I applied for a lot of programs that involved entering um entering a specified workforce whether that be national or international and then that whatever fund or grant was supporting that would then give you free schooling um as mm -hmm. i really uh, i couldn't conceptually uh, conceptualize the idea and i didn't have anybody in my life that could co-sign for loans so i was i had to strategize if i did want to go to school how could i go to school not for free but how could i go to school in an affordable aspect that i could do on like a self-reliant 18 to 19 year old um course of credit history and everything and so unfortunately none of that really came to fruition and i was pinned with the with the i guess second option of you know going to work and so um it had just happened that i was already part of the seasonal work in solar and so i would say you know the decision was made for me in the sense that i was made an offer immediately after leaving school and it was in my lap and i didn't know i could go to school at that point there was no there was no option monetarily that could support me going to school. I didn't have the like academic support and I didn't have the monetary support in order for me to be able to make scholarships happen. So um, yeah, I was just kind of given the opportunity and I rolled with it. Uh, I was making good money. I think, you know, at the age of 17 and 18, I was making $19 an hour, which wow. now doesn't really seem like a lot because minimum wage has grown a lot. But when <laughs> minimum wage was $7.20 and, um, you know, high schoolers were still making minimum wage most of the time, I that was very good. And I was able to realize how much money that would turn into, especially with things like overtime. I mean, 
over time, time and a half is a wild concept when it, when income is generated in your life. And a majority of people, you know, aim for that time and a half. So your 40 hours isn't really where you're making the money. So that was at the uh, solar company you're, you're working at? Correct. Yeah. So you're working at the solar company. How do you, and you're working with your hands, how do you end up in the real estate world from there? Totally. So um, it, it wasn't immediate and it definitely wasn't gradual either. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, it was natural steps that ended up in that path. So um, when I was, I'm trying to think. So when I was 18, the company that I was working for that no longer exists, which is a trend in solar, you work for a solar company and all of a sudden it's gone. Um, that happened to me twice. Uh, <laughs> and so the company I was working for uh, decided to outsource a ton of their labor. And so they chose to um, lay off 43 people. And from that point, I had to make a decision. I was still living at home at 18 and I had to make a decision, you know, what was I going to do? And I decided to stay in solar and that took me to Richmond. So um, I moved to Richmond when I was 18 and I worked for another solar company that allowed me to climb the ranks a little bit. I became a team leader or a site lead and I started having the ability to design solar systems. So I was seeing what the management side was, not upper management, but I saw, you know, what managing other people was. And I was still very young. I mean, 19. So from that point, that company ended up failing and I had the foresight to notice that it was failing um, after about a year and a half. And so I transitioned from that company into a project manager role. I guess, you know, I just wrote a pretty darn good resume and I knew somebody at that company. And so um, they allowed me to transition in a introductory role and then grow into a project management role. And so I stayed with that company uh, doing project management in network design and uh, fire systems, life safety systems, as well as camera systems. Um, and so I grew into that role. And during COVID, we experienced, I'd never had a day off. I think I had one day off. They announced the COVID lockdown. And by the next day, they said, we're going to work. So that was pretty crazy. But what we experienced wow. was um, all of those large companies that we were working for, Target, Walmart, O'Reilly's, those are all the big box offices that we supported. Um, they postponed everything. And so we saw this wild lull during COVID um, for three or four months where they really didn't know how to manage their workforce, their subcontractors, all of that. And all of a sudden they said, you know, we are keeping the timeline that we maintained in 2019 and we want all these products done by the end of the year. So we transitioned from doing, you know, barely making our 40 hours a week to doing 80 hours a week, pulling 24 hour days. Um, so we, we had an expedited timeline with three months less of work order. Uh, and we were understaffed. So I, you know, kicked into overdrive and I experienced intense burnout during 2020. And um, when I wrapped up the last project of that year, the fiscal year, I decided that was enough. And I had been saving for a duplex. Um, I wanted to transition into real estate one way or the other. And so I had been saving, I saved $40,000 and that was going to be used for my first investment property uh, in 2020. But then when I decided to, you know, walk away, wash my hands of that burnout, I pivoted and started my real estate career. So before we get into your real estate career, I'm curious, how did you know that you want to buy a duplex? How did you know about that concept of buying a multifamily? That's a great question. Um, I had read uh, Millionaire Real Estate Agent and Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Carrie Keller. And the I had been introduced to those through family members um, who were in the real estate um, 
segment, but I really didn't gain much influence from them. I don't really think I got any guidance or anything. Um, those family members were very supportive of any decision to make, but they were never forceful. So they'd introduced me to those books and I had read them. Um, and I had realized that, you know, as a single young male, I had the availability to put money somewhere and uh, stocks wasn't really interesting. I didn't have any education there and I didn't really have any influence from that. And so between YouTube and reading and um, just realizing that there was a path to put my money, that was mm -hmm. kind of the natural subset for me to invest. How long were you, in the last question before we get into how you made that leap into real estate, how long were you, we'll call it researching before, you know, you felt comfortable where you were to the point where like, hey, I'm ready to pull the trigger. You'll find that um, in my story, I'm very much so discover, investigate, and then pull the trigger because otherwise no no action happens. So I think I had only had that mindset from the moment that I started saving that money, um, probably mm -hmm. six months. I was really determined gotcha. within six months to, you know, make that change in my life, um, which is a very big trend. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my partner mentioned recently, we were talking about I'm doing tiling in my investment property. And she just acknowledged the fact that like, um, even the like I was doing hex small hexagonal tile, which is the worst tile to do. And I've only done tile like three times in my life. So um, she was like, how did you learn how to do this? And I said, I don't know. I just decided that I was going to do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, um, yeah, I, I just have a determination. I like doing things right. So I definitely do my research. Um, I don't jump into them naively, but I'm also not a master at whatever I do. So. Got you. So you saved, you have the 40,000, you've been saving and researching for six months. What do you do from there? So in October of 2020, I pivoted and walked away. It was a slow transition. I think I exited in December officially, but I went to being un unemployed, which for the first time in my life had, I'd been in that case. Um, I'd been employed for, I guess, coming up to seven years at that point, um, just from, you know, small part-time jobs during school into full-time employment and then COVID. And so um, I really had no idea what to do. And for the first month, I just started applying to jobs. But as you would understand, I mean, the end of 2020, the job market was absolutely wretched. Um, working from home was the norm because most uh, in-field employers were, you know, not interested in hiring. They were hiring halts. And then um, I really had no interest in going back to the trades. That's where I got my burnout from in the first place. So I was a little aimless and um, decided to start reaching out to like people that I knew in my network. And that kind of led to real estate. So Harry has been of the uh, Keller Williams of Manassas, Virginia. He is a coach there. And um, I met him through family members and he began coaching me well before I even was interested in real estate. And it just so happened that, you know, he followed me into my training courses and I met a lot of great people doing that. So I ended up going with Keller Williams and entering the real estate market um, through their digital courses. Nothing was in person. So it was just very, it seemed natural. It wasn't my last resort, but it also filled the gaps. It was a pretty low cost to enter. I think I spent $3,000 and that was the high end of what it costs to get your license in the modern day. Um, and so I just kind of left in. So you pass your real estate exam, you're, you know, you get on with Keller Williams. What is your initial, because, you know, COVID was kind of wild in real estate. It was kind of like the wild west. Oh yeah. What's going on from there? Because you're a new agent. I don't even know if you did. I'm not sure if you had any context to sell to. So, I mean, how, oh, do, yeah. you, how do you 
in the middle of COVID, when it's people are skeptical of everybody and everything that's coming at them, how do you build your clientele? And then also, how do you start building your portfolio? For sure. I think the first thing that I, or the first thing that happened, and I wouldn't even say I made that decision. It was just what the natural progression was. I had a coach and, um, you know, months before my license even came in, I officially was licensed in April of 21. So, I mean, from December of 2020, I had a coach and it, it was partially life coaching, partially success in real estate and a lot of networking. Um, I'm not a salesperson. I still don't consider myself a salesperson. <laughs> I think um, I think more than anything, I value strong relationships and I value knowledge and educating. Um, and that's kind of been my motivation since I started owning my own business was, you know, educating others. Um, and education leads to facts and facts lead to confidence and confidence leads to sales. So can I stop you real quick? Of course. I, 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 so, you know, I, I currently work for the government. I'm also in the military. But before I did that, I worked in sales for, I don't know, eight years, nine years, something like that. I, find, I love what you said. And I think it's really important that people who want to be realtors understand that. And I hope you can expound on this. Why is it important that you look at sales, from, at least from your perspective? Why do you think it's important that you look at sales as a, as a, um, as a relationship-building exercise instead of, hey, I want to just sell you something? For sure. Um... I think, you know, at a very blunt and honest side of it is if you're making a single sale and you don't have a relationship, you won't make a repeat sale. And yes. the way to expand your database and a solid downstream and um, a really large queue for rever referrals in your referral network is if you don't create a relationship upon your sale, then your sale is just that. It is it is a single transaction that doesn't benefit you further. Um, and so being able to create a relationship can create further sales, a larger referral network, and a stream of income um, that you would have to continually lead generate for other otherwise. So, I mean, I've only been in real estate for three years, and um, I've had clients refer up to 10 further clients from that wow. single sale. And that was because, you know, I created a relationship. I felt they felt supported. I made sure they felt supported. Um, and they were educated and they were confident in their sale. They were pleased. And from that point, that made an impact on them to then speak my name again. So, wow! Thank you for that. Continue with for sure. uh, what you're saying. So, for sure. So, um, I would definitely say coaching was a big part. And uh, if anybody's listening that wants to become a real estate agent, find a coach. Uh, I am in an intermediary where I outgrew my coach, and so I'm exploring new coaches right now. And it's, it, frankly, it, it's not great to manage my business without a coach. I feel like I don't have the accountability I do without having somebody to even bounce my ideas on. And I can do that with peers, but a coach has an investment into your future. I mean, a coach earns, usually, typically a coach earns per transaction. So, you know, you have somebody that's betting on you and their feedback is important, but you can outgrow people just like therapy. I mean, any any normal uh, uh, mental health study can say that you'll outgrow your therapist. You'll learn the strategies that one person can contribute and it's healthy to grow to the next one and you know see the perspective from another person i like that thank you for that i've never heard that perspective but that absolutely makes total sense to me so you get your license you're building relationships at that point in time had you even bought your uh, had you purchased a duplex yet or your own property yet 
I had no idea what was in real estate and you know hindsight's 2020 um I realized I oversaved when I gained when I earned my real estate license I realized how much I had oversaved and that I could have easily been an investment property (laughs) like during my employment and that was a little crushing to you know understand but I was uneducated I didn't have the guidance of another real estate agent and I, I frankly hadn't entered the idea of taking action and that that hurt me in hindsight but if I didn't have the $40,000, I wouldn't be able to pivot into creating my own own company and, and joining real estate uh, because I needed a support for six to eight months where I wouldn't be seeing income. So it carried me. Um, and my first sale ever was my landlord. Um, I, I frankly have no idea how the conversation started, but um, I was on the phone with my landlord and he had just sold a house with his real estate agent. And she had no interest in 1031-ing that money into a new investment. I had no idea what 1031s were. Um, and so I just said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll learn it. And so for the next seven days, I crash course 1031 exchanges heavily. I reached out to his specific exchange, which was First American Financial out of California. And I learned a ton from them. I just asked them every brutal question I could as, as poor people. Um, and uh, I just hammered down on, you know, what a 1030 exchange it was. And at that point forward, I produced a handful of properties that were outside of his normal search range. Um, at that point, he had only invested singularly in the fan of Richmond, which is, you know, a historic downtown, if, if mm-hmm. people are unfamiliar with Richmond, Virginia. And so I immediately put him in Forest Hill and found him several multifamily properties that could be expanded on with ADUs. Um, and I produced a property that he just didn't have, he didn't conceptualize. It was a new perspective for him because he had been so fixated on investing in historic Richmond, which at that point was pricing quite strongly out of that that regurgitation of his 1031 exchange. So um, my first sale was a duplex in Forest Hill uh, that is now having an ADU built on it that I'm guiding him into and building an Airbnb on it. Uh, and so it, it was a great sale that's then made a return. I've served him, I think, on 11 transactions at this point. Wow. Can you please explain to the audience? I mean, I've used a 1031 several times before, but can you explain what a 1031 to our audience is? Because I'm sure not everyone knows what that is. Absolutely. I'm going to express it with caution because current legislature is actually phasing 1031 exchanges out. It's been under pretty heavy fire for the last year. So 1031 exchanges potentially may not exist in the next half year to a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You know, I would love for it to continue serving the investment community, (laughs) but um, and there will likely be another asset for that because, you know, legislatures themselves are real estate investors, so they're not going (laughs) to shoot themselves in the feet. But um, for the most part, 1031 exchanges is a tax deferral program. And so that's when you sell a property or an asset and then you defer that money into a third party escrow account for a certain period of time and then reinvest it into a like minded asset. So. Um, you can go from residential to a commercial purchase in a 1031 exchange and vice versa. You can you can transition from a commercial to resident residential purchases. But for in layman's terms, for 45 days after the day you relinquish, as long as you identify and then furthermore purchase a property, uh, that money will never have capital gain on it. So, uh, well, I say never in that transaction, there will be no capital gain on it. And so right now, capital gains is 31 percent in real estate. So that's a lot of money to be kept in the investor's pocket and transitioned into a new asset. Yeah, let me, I would like to add to that. So theoretically, just so we have 
so people have more of a, a visual. coherent thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you let's say you buy a house, it's appreciated a hundred thousand dollars, and you you don't want to really pay taxes on this hundred thousand dollars that you have that you will have a capital gain on. What you can do is you take that hundred thousand dollars plus whatever the you know whatever money else you have within the property, and you basically purchase an additional house with it, and you move that money into that second house, and that is how you can defer your capital gain. So thank you so much for that explanation. So of course, and also, I have it to also has to be non-owner yeah. occupant. Thank you for it, adding. It that. has to be. It has to be an investment property. You cannot do a ten thirty one exchange on your on your personal home. Thank you for that. But I have to commend you. You were able to turn that into what ten? You said ten or eleven transactions. I think we've done eleven transactions. Yeah. I have to commend you. You were like the go to sales. That is amazing. That is <laughs> that, that's incredible. So you get your first transaction done, and you still haven't even bought your own house yet. Oh yeah, yeah. I only recently bought my my first home. I bought in October of last year. Yeah. So when is so at this point in time you get your first sale under your belt? How do you? <laughs> because I know you have your Airbnb business and your slash property management business. When does that? That's not. Is that something that you recently not started? Not for some or? time. Yeah, I started property. I started my property management company, Urban Agent, uh, in January of twenty-two. I believe. No, January of twenty-three. Yeah, January of twenty-three. So at that point, I I was really just surviving. Um, I made my first sale within two weeks of my license being issued, mm -hmm. which was excellent. I mean, that is the dream scenario for a real estate agent in order to be able to hit the ground running. But I had been grooming that client for over three months at that point, so I didn't. It didn't happen in thin air, but I had, you know, I had nested a seed in in their um, understanding that you know I was a real estate agent. I, you could say, fake it till I made it. I identified as a real estate agent before I had my license issued to me, and that allowed me to gather information, educate them, and. Although I was faking it till I made it, I was being completely honest and forward on the support that I had. If I had a question that I didn't know, I mm -hmm. didn't make something up. I, I relied on my coach and my peers in order to, you know, provide information that would then inform my client. So um, I think that commission was ten or twelve thousand dollars, which was a substantial amount of money, and it was non-tax deducted money too. So that was a whole other part of owning a business that I was not used to. Was I had to manage money and have the concept of taxes and tax deduction at the end of the year. But so I took that initial money and I dumped it into immediately um immediately into uh uh I don't know I'm going blanking on the word into branding. So I went really heavy in in branding. Um I invested in a website, I invested in uh social media SEO, um specifically Facebook and Instagram. And so I I probably took about half of that money and I invested into lead generation and branding just to create an identifier for myself. Uh and that generated into future sales. I really went heavy on uh you know squeezing my own network. I I think your most beneficial sales are the people that know you. And you'd be surprised how many people know you and your name, even if you're not close to them. And so uh, from there, I really just started embracing the fact that I was making a decent amount of money on something that I'd never done before rather quickly. Um, and at I think in 2021, I made like forty-five dollars or $50,000 in six months, which was, you know, a, that was enough money for me to realize that there was something there, but it wasn't an outright success story. I mean, I was, I was just as successful as somebody would like to be entering the real estate business as like a bare minimum. And so from there, uh, I fell in love with Rob. Um, oh, it's Rob Ilt on YouTube channel. I don't know why I'm going blank on his name. Rob. 
I'll have to I'll have to remind remind myself. But it's Ro mm-hmm. Built on YouTube. He's like the Airbnb person, um, and so I had found his YouTube videos, and I believe early 2021, and uh, I just started di- like deep diving into Airbnb as something that I loved using as an individual and something that I saw as an investment opportunity, and he released a crash course called Host Camp. I think mid 2021 and I immediately spent the $2,000 to join that uh, because I just wanted knowledge. And from there, he created a network of investors, people that would also invest in the program, but were looking at it in different aspects, being the primary investor, being only the manager um, and, you know, being silent investors or doing all of the managing side. So it was lots of different types of, of people joining uh, this group. And so I was able to kind of leapfrog from that. So I was joining projects as a very small aspect, whether that was being the agent to network, giving referrals out to other agents, or, um, you know, creating the A-team, like, as we like to call it, which is, you know, your cleaners and your contractors and everything else, being the person to put the time into researching that. So initially, I was not making any large investments. I didn't have any money to make my own investments. Um, and I didn't have enough experience to be the controlling factor of launching airbnbs but so i just started contributing for free to as many community members as i could and so from there um, i grew my knowledge enough to walk my way into deals with either people that i knew and invested with in my real estate career locally or digitally across the country um can you give me an example of a deal that you did so it makes more sense like i i i i audibly hear you but totally. an example would be very helpful totally so let's say you want to buy a yurt in arizona um and a, a yurt is something that you typically would not want to buy secondhand they are known for mold and they have a pretty short life lifespan and so your next step would naturally be buy land so first you have to find the real estate agent that has the know-how to buy land with the right zoning which in arizona would be any form of commercial zoning business zoning or high high level residential zoning um in virginia it's r1 through 27 in arizona i don't quite remember the numbers but basically if you were like r20 through 27 that type of zoning would allow uh airbnb or some form of natural right to income generation on your property in arizona so let's say you start with start with land then your real estate agent is pretty much put to the side that you've used them for the purchase that you need then you need to build the rest of the team. And so for the beginning of that, I would walk in after land had been purchased and I would invest my time to interview, log, and create spreadsheets around contractors that could build the yurt, build the um, build the infrastructure around it, whether that be septic and water and electricity, uh, and then stagers and everything else, photographers. So I was contributing my time freely to projects that were happening uh, so that I could get my foothold in and meet investors and meet members of the managing side uh, and kind of introduce myself in. And then they would carry the project on and they would hire those contractors or not hire those contractors and launch the Airbnb to create a six- successful business. So my entry was just basically giving free time, which in a lot of success stories is that case. You know, people walk into a mechanic shop and sweep the floors for free for half a year before they can become a mechanic sometimes. So kind of the same thing. So you, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I mean, just from there, uh, I really, really wanted to manage and I didn't have the money to put my foot in the door. So I ended up investing um, in some projects with some of my investors locally that already owned the land and the buildings that they wanted to pivot from. And so we would take long term tenants and transition the space and renovate the space into Airbnbs. And that was really my entry 
into managing Airbnb was uh, pivoting the business plan of my investors that had created a success story in long-term rental. And are you still are and are you still active in Airbnb? Totally. Yeah, I'm launching launching one next week, hopefully. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. In in Richmond. In uh, Shenandoah. Oh, nice. So you guys took it from land and built something, or did you guys convert something with a long-term tenant and convert that to an Airbnb? We actually bought a residential log cabin um, mm-hmm. and then pivoted it into a vacation rental. Can you walk us through when you have a take the log cabin for example when you're attempting to take a log cabin which is obviously that setting seems very beautiful what are the steps that you're taking to turn that into an airbnb totally um so the number one thing is to make sure the numbers are there like any other investment there are certain metrics that you base that off of so for something like the shenandoah where a lot of the traffic is um, vacation traffic it's not um it's not like seasonal in the sense of um drive-throughs like passing through areas like most of the midwest will be areas that people don't typically destination specifically but it's a stop through um so the blue ridge is an area is a destination where people travel it's also a destination close enough to a lot of city centers like dc richmond charlottesville um, and then like west virginia maryland um and so shenandoah is an area where people can travel for an hour have a destination for a weekend and return home so when we're looking at metrics, we're looking at how do how do vacation rentals in the similar size sleep uh, order. So for us, 16 people, um, what are the similar metrics of homes in the area? And places like AirDNA will give you those metrics. Zillow has started dabbling in long-term and short-term rental metrics. Um, and so uh, you're using these in order to find what the occupancy rating for a year-on-year is, what the average price year-on-year is, what the average amenities year on year is. And so you're taking all of those metrics to value is the investment worth your cash on cash return. And cash on cash return is typically used for a fiscal year. So if I want to make 10% cash on cash, then I'm making 10% of my my investment back in the first fiscal year. So, um, you know, with a metric like a log cabin, I'm sleeping 16 people. It's a $500,000 house. What do I need to make in in the cash on cash bowl and for us was 20 percent. so of the of the money invested which let's say two hundred thousand dollars with rehab and down payment we want to make that back we want to make at least 20 percent back in the first year and right now we're looking at like 110,000 year on year for return well good for you guys okay so what is your so for me i i'm not an airbnb guy i'm a i like just owning it having the stability of someone paying me rent every single month. Heck yeah. Granted, I, listen, I got I to gotta show love to Airbnb. The people who can do it, if you get it right, you can make way more money doing that than just owning it and then renting out to one tenant. So I, I totally get that. I think my question is, I have met people, in, and again, I, I don't know what, you're, what people are experiencing in Virginia, but my wife and I, when we were moving back to Virginia, we stayed at this beautiful Airbnb in LA. Shout out to Kelly. Um, and she was saying that her, like she knows other Airbnb hosts, and they were saying that um, at least in LA or at least their neighborhood was starting to slow down. Have you experienced anything like that with Airbnb because it's becoming so much more competitive? I mean, when Airbnb first came out, I mean, you know, there was only a handful of people, and now everyone wants to be an Airbnb host. So you're, I guess, the competition is it's kind of increasing. So how are you navigating that? with uh, increased competition 
failure rates have absolutely climbed. I would say it's almost to the point where every Airbnb opened and Airbnb closes as well. And that's because there's such a range of investors that are entering the space. You're coming from rooms for rent that are, you know, Ikea furniture, Target furniture. Their investment is $2,000 and all they want to do is make $1,000 a month. Those are failing just in the sense that there is too many of those options and everybody's pricing them too high. A room for rent average that is successful is under $50 a night now. Whereas, you know, three or four years ago, people could be charging 80 or $90 for a room for rent and still be successful in their metropolitan areas. Um, so because the fail rate is so high, you're having to create an environment that is so unique and so enticing to be successful. And that is happening everywhere. Uh, and additionally, I mean, lots and lots of areas are outlawing Airbnb and short-term rental entirely primarily from the peer pressure of hotels. Big hotels have dumped a ton of money into lobbying against Airbnb. Things like Virginia Beach are completely outlawed. You cannot get grandfathered in. If you're running a short-term rental, you're doing it illegally in Virginia Beach. That just happened in Dallas and Austin, Texas. A majority of Texas's massive metropolitan area is now outlawing Airbnb, and that's closing down businesses you know, overnight. People are having to pivot. I had... Um, I have three investors in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we had an emergency, like, three-day-long pivot plan in order for them to be able to transition out of short-term rental immediately and safely um, because their investments were where they were obsolete in the short-term rental space. So, um, you know, entering that space and being successful is really about imprinting an experience on your guest, and whether that be being completely inexpensive and serving them in the cause that they need or being an experience to teleport them away. Like um, downtown Richmond, we have a Cuban style uh, studio apartment and that is completely intended. It was an $80,000 renovation that was completely intended to teleport the guests. So we have custom tile up the stairways and custom handrails and all paint structure. Our interior designer went like to the 10th mile where every room is over-decorated. And that's because we want to teleport that guest from, from where they're walking in from. And um, that's been successful and has still experienced seasonality, but it's been successful because people are yearning for that stay. They, they're looking to experience something that they aren't regularly going to experience, which is IKEA furniture, Target furniture, um, you know, a generic white, black, and, and um, Ashley home furniture styled walls. And so yeah. um, it, you're, you're contributing to their experience, which is, you know, since COVID happened, what most people are doing. Uh, staycations have become so popular in the rental segment because people are just sick of working from home and they want to get away, but they can't give up their dogs or their kids or whatever that may be. So they rent a place in their same city that can, you know, give them an escape for a day. Wow. So if I'm interpreting what you're saying is you're basically saying when you give a guest an experience and you give them something that's very unique where you've actually spent the money, because obviously we all know when, when you... There's obviously a difference between going to the dollar store and going to Target, obviously, right? Absolutely. And that's essentially what you're saying. You're you're actually you and and your investors are actually putting that sweat equity, that money in to give someone like, hey, I feel like I'm in Cuba for the weekend. Exactly. And and that actually makes the difference in what you're saying. And then my other question was, so all the metrics that you were talking about, can all all of that be found on the I think you said DNA Airbnb? Air DNA, yeah. So, I'm sorry, Air DNA. Yeah, Thank you Air for DNA, that. AIR DNA. Um, yeah, so that's a completely public interface. It takes from VRBO, Furnished Finder, Airbnb, and I 
think, bookings.com, and it takes every single active stay and inactive stay in the area, and it combines all of that data into one metric table for you. You'd have to pay per location, uh, and I think it's kind of a lot of money now, but it used to be free, and you can pull all the active data. Um, and I, I still pay for like certain metropolitan areas. Like If I find a market that I really want to invest in, I buy my AirDNA immediately and just watch it for a couple months in order to see how the revolution of seasons are in that area. Um, but it's, I mean, it's incredible. It will pull everything that you want. It'll pull primarily occupancy is what most people care about. How, how frequently is one state occupied in a fiscal year? And, um, that's the huge, that's the biggest metric you have. But I mean, anything from tax data to average stay cost, the number of occupants in the space, like the average, average home that's provided in Richmond, our average, um, stay is 1.2 people. So it's typically a one bed home. Um, and so, uh, you know, taking that metric that influences how you're purchasing a home. If, if I was to buy in Richmond and I was looking to host a ton of people, I would likely not be looking in Richmond. I'd be looking in the rural areas around because Richmond city does not have the demand for more than the average of 1.2 people. Is that where your cabin situation comes into play? Uh, I think so. Partially because, uh, the Shenandoah is an area where people come to escape. And typically they do that on large parties. I personally, I'm I'm a younger individual, and a lot of my um, a lot of my friend groups travel in large groups on weekends. You know, a lot of them are having their first kids. A lot of them mm -hmm. are just freshly married, and so their form of celebration is how can I do something affordable, but also do it with people that I love, and that's usually between ten and fifteen people. So we took that and we looked at you know what was the comparing properties in the area, and the average home in the Shenandoah that's for rent can sleep up to eight. So. We took, ah. we went, we went to the highest level and we said, you know, we can sleep 16 comfortably, affordably, and make it, you know, a destination for people. And we can make it where somebody's not sleeping on the floor. Um, and so we are aiming for the highest number of people because you can go to the ski resort immediately. You can go hiking immediately, or you can just, you know, make this 3,500 square foot cabin your destination for the weekend. So we wanted to accommodate the most people because the most people will need to be accommodated in that situation. How are you, because I know my, my listeners are curious about this. After someone spends a night at one of your Airbnbs, how do you guys get them to get the door open? How do you guys get the place cleaned? How do you guys get the whole thing reset up for the next night or two days later or whenever your next guest is going to arrive? Everything is automated. So um, my... Okay. My service, what primarily what I make my Airbnb money is, is for $5,000. I'm not going to make this a sales pitch, but for $5,000, um, you pay me in order to set up, organize, automate, and hand off the Airbnb to you. So that's, that's my preference. I don't really like managing Airbnbs. It's quite a time consumption. And I don't like the philosophy that managing an Airbnb is a 20% or more industry. Um, I think asking 20% to manage a property is frankly just unreasonable especially if with first-time investors and i don't want to be part of that so my goal is to create the most successful strategy for an individual to manage themselves and so that's all through automation airbnb specifically there's a handful of them price labs is the notorious um and kind of unanimously agreed service which is price adjustment it's automated and daily price adjustment and so price labs takes your Airbnb stay compares it to the rest of the, da the data in that market and on a daily basis adjusts for current demand within your 
within your mins and maxes um, and adjusts for the type of stays that are coming up. It adjusts for holidays. It does everything automatically for you. So that way you you can set your, let's say you set your minimum for $90 a day and you set your maximum for $300 a day. Air, or Price Labs is going to find what metric suits for that week or that day or, or that holiday. Um, and you walk away, you're, you're washing your hands of it. Additionally, I'm automating messaging. Um, so I create and curate the most personalized and personable um, automated messages with as much auto-filled information as I can. So, you know, the guest name, the number of guests, uh, the days that the guest is attending. It, I'll even have some stuff reference their initial first message. Like if a guest is saying that they and their um, spouse are coming for the weekend, I can have the automated programs cite that information back to them. And so on six different occasions in each person's stay, they're getting an automated message from me that seems personal, that appears sincere, and that if they reply to, I immediately notify and reply back to them with, you know, my in-person feedback. Um, but I mean, I have guests all the time that never once message you back and your six automated messages give them all the information, give them the support they feel like they need, the warmth of a, of a good host, and um, you're, you're going to touch it at all. You have zero time invested in that guest. So the, the, the program does that for you, the exactly communicating with it, <clears throat> excuse me, giving them the instructions to get in. But how did once they're? But I am curious. So once they're done, how are how are you uh, auto, uh, somewhat automating that process once they leave, and you got to get the your your rooms ready uh, for the next guest? Totally. So the uh, program that I use the most for cleaners is called Turno, and it is a uh, cleaner um, bid list basically. So cleaners will sign up; they'll have a reputation there, and then you're bidding per price on your clean. So I'll provide them, you know, my four bedroom, four bathroom, sleep 16 cabin. And in the local area, Turno will have cleaners that can bid on my cabin for a specific price per clean. I then lock that cleaner in and they immediately get linked to my Airbnb account. So every time I have a stay that's booked, the cleaner immediately gets to see it and they immediately have the choice to accept or, or decline that stay. And then they're added to that calendar. So um, typically in rural areas, I'll have two cleaning two cleaners primarily because something like a cabin takes a ton of effort and uh, cleaners are not going to have my cabin as their only cabin. So um, they both have the choice to accept. And the moment one of them accepts, it takes it off the calendar of the other. And so that's completely automated. And if something goes wrong, then they have me or the owner of the property to you know bounce the information off of. I create really detailed checklists that are, are ready to go per room, per amenity, um, and per decoration. So like something like if a, if a hat on the wall gets stolen, I want a picture of it. And even if the cleaner doesn't catch it, the picture that's sent to me will catch it and I'll notice that a hat is gone. Um, and so having a checklist, not only of their check-in items and their checklist for cleaning, but it also a picture checklist is really crucial to being able to disconnect from the stay automatically. Wow. Now, do you have any long, like long-term uh, real estate projects that you have or you're renting every month or are you 100% in, invested in Airbnb? So I property manage LTR, MTR, and STR. Uh, so I do all, all three. And my property management side, Urban Agent, manages, I currently have three larger investors. I don't really want to disclose the amount of doors, mm -hmm. but um, the, I have three long-term investment uh, portfolios. Got you. Okay. So you 
you basically help people start their Airbnbs, you manage Airbnbs, and then you also manage the long-term uh, totally. tenants and you have clients that are giving you their doors. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I'm curious, do you have a preference in what you prefer doing or, or both? Because it sounds like with the Airbnb, you have to be more, uh, it seems like you have to be more a little bit more Way more hands-on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, LTR is definitely the way to go. If you can do a long-term rental and a really effective property management, it's such a low time consumption. Um, I feel like I can respect a guest, I can respect a tenant's time, I can respect the owner's time, and I can handle things a lot more diligently in long-term rental. It's also, you know, per door, a lot less mm -hmm. time invested. And automating the long-term rental was so much easier and requires a lot less adjusting like day on day, whereas mm -hmm. Airbnb, I have to do like a, a quarterly check-in on seeing if what I've got automated for my Airbnbs are effective. Whereas long-term rentals, I leverage uh, the Monday suite. And so monday.com and the Slack space, those are all integrated. And those, you know, tie in emails, tie in vendors, um, you can tie in the owners, everything goes to one source and is a really, really good CMA. Um, and so, you know, the Monday space, Monday.com is just phenomenal can you for that. Can you, explain, can you explain a little bit about that? Like how you're totally. utilizing that in your day? So Monday.com is a CMA, um, just like any other CMA or, um, you know, uh, productivity suite. It has its own resources for how to organize projects um, and organize you know, communications and everything. And the one thing I love, and most programs allow it now, but I think Monday was the first, was tying in emails automatically. And you do that by Monday.com generates a email for you. And so you then CC that email into all of your correspondence. So every reply, every basically any form of paper trail goes straight to their file within your CMA. Um, and that's phenomenal for things like damage reports. Um, so like, you know, if you have a tenant that is on a 24-month lease, you may forget a damage that they reported in the first month. That then becomes a question of, you know, who's accountable for that damage. And even though the tenant isn't responsible for that damage because it was there, it was existing within that first month, um, your property manager may not recall or have a paper trail. So we do that to protect the tenants um, because tenant protection is really important and communication is really important. Um, and then it's just a solid paper trail. We know every single report from that tenant. We know every single, you know, if there's any police activity, we can have the police report immediately issued to that file. Um, so. There's a there's a lot of great great use case for having a really solid property really solid project management source um, tied into your property management. And that and that's the thing that's helping you stay productive. You said that's called Monday. Monday.com. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've never heard yeah. of that. I'm gonna have to look into that. Sounds yeah. That sounds it'd be helpful to me. Heck yeah. Um, I'm curious. So when you, if you had to redo because you you've had you have your hands in so many different things, which I find oh, yeah. to be amazing. If you had to give yourself advice when you were starting out. And because knowing your level of intellectual curiosity and the things that you're so hungry for in life, is there anything you would have done differently to to get to where you are now? I think lead generation's always been the bane of my existence. Um, <laughs> like I said, I'm not really a salesperson. I more rely on relationships. And so cold calling and cold emailing has been really tough for me. Um, I think the one thing that I wish I had pivoted in further was investing more into lead generation and SEO. I never really got into Google SEO. It's a very high cost of entry that uh, I feel like. I mean, you can do you can do a hundred hours into digging digging how to be effective, or you can spend eighty thousand dollars a year, and those are really the two phenomenal returns for Google SEO. 
but doing it at a very low level, there's very little return in my experience, or at least from mm -hmm. my knowledge that I could be entirely wrong, but at least the impression that I've been given. Um, so, you know, I only did three or $400 a month into Facebook and Instagram ads. I kind of wish I tripled that and, you know, afforded that money to that um, because you do get, um, I would say every 200 leads, um, whether they be cold, warm, or hot, uh, is a good lead in uh, Facebook and Instagram leads. And so, you know, if I could produce 800 plus leads a, a month, that could be four potential clients on an average. Um, and I just wasn't getting that at the two to $400 a month. So I wish I dumped a lot more money into that. I'm now kind of pivoting into doing that more, but Facebook leads are also kind of dying out now. So I'm having to, again, pivot my strategy for sales. And then mm -hmm. um, making your touches. One of the biggest things that Gary Keller said in Millionaire Real Estate Agent is um, to you know, make your seven touches a year. Seven touches keeps you relevant. And uh, even though I did create automated services around that, I just really wasn't as effective as I could have been. And I probably just should have hired somebody to make those touches. But it felt very When, when you say dishonest. touches, can you explain to the audience what that means? So a touch is, is just, you know, making contact. So whether that's a check-in call, a text, an email, you're making a you're making a physical touch with that individual. And that's bringing you up to the front of their mind. So um, the, it's I don't know, remember what the metrics and what the data is that they pulled, but they averaged that if you made seven touches with an individual a year, that you would stay relevant in the course of your business with their front of mind. So you would always be the first real estate agent that comes to mind when they think about you. You've touched on so many different things, and I, I even learned some things from you today, and I really appreciate that. Someone who's listening who has next to zero experience in real estate goes, man, when I grow up, I want to be Nick. What? What do you? What are you telling them so that they can be you when they grow up? Basically, um, I think listening to your intuition is a huge part. I think you know, just getting that gut feeling. I, I'm uh, kind of pivoting away from Airbnb management, and my gut feeling was, you know, this is consuming more time and more effort than I would like to in my in my life. I would like to grow my other businesses. I would like to give more time back to my family. And so, you know, trusting that my intuition told me, you know, Airbnb is what's consuming you. So I wanted to stay in Airbnb, but I didn't want to manage anymore. So I needed to pivot. And I just had to trust that that was the right decision because I had, you know, gotten that inkling. Um, I think that also goes to client interaction. If you're having a really, really bad situation with a client, and your intuition is saying, you know, they're just having a bad time or they're not or not communicating enough or there's just a misunderstanding. You know, sometimes you have to listen to yourself in that sense. Sometimes there's just something underneath and that can solve a lot of the problems that you experience because we're humans. You know, you and I are having a conversation. If I was mm -hmm. selling you a product, we're still having that same conversation. It's just, you know, what it's becoming a transaction. Mm -hmm. And so understanding the nuances of human interaction and that we are people, we have lives behind us, we have families behind us, we have pressures behind us. Um, it can really make your business thrive just because your relationship is much deeper, even if you're not touching deep subjects. It's deeper because you understand that you're talking to a person and that person is receiving you as a human and not a salesperson. How do you judge your success in this business in terms of what you where you want to be? Are you looking at it from a standpoint of dollars and cents like i want my net worth to be here i want this many properties how are how are you judging your success kind of like i guess on a year-on-year -year basis i think my success is 
that I'm still engaged and interested, I mm -hmm. lose interest very quickly. And so if I'm being successful, I'm still engaged in the work. I'm still serving my clients the way I would want to be served. Um, I'm producing results that make me happy and confident. And admittedly, being a business owner and being in real estate, I've had multiple situations where I'm evaluating where I am. I'm putting my emotions on trial and I'm realizing what, what I'm doing is not making me happy and I'm pivoting. Um, there, there is nothing less fulfilling than walking away from a transaction that you made a ton of money on and going, wow, I wish I was doing something else. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big reality for me is Mm -hmm. success is not a metric for me it's not data it's am i feeling fulfilled do i feel like what i'm doing as a service to others is that being impactful on my life am i walking away happy that it's happening and i've had situations where no the answer is not I, i'm not enjoying what i'm doing even if i am successful in it so um i would say success is just that feeling of content like being content um not complacent i'm never complacent but i'm always content with what i'm doing nick Property manager, Airbnb host, realtor, a jack of all trades, <laughs> solar expert. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else you, any more titles we could add to you. So thank much. You, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I really did learn some things and just a wealth of knowledge. And honestly, you'll probably get a call from me because I, I have some projects that I probably would need someone to help me out with at, at some point in time. So I really Heck, appreciate yeah. it. Hey, ADUs, if you're in the Richmond market, ADUs are the next step. It's been, I, I've yeah. been in every single Richmond legislation change in the past two years. I've sat in City Hall and gotten so many parking tickets from sitting in those <laughs> damn meetings. Um, I swear, I've, I've literally, I'm going to write off $400 in parking tickets this year from sitting in City Hall meetings. Um, Listen, that's, <laughs> I, have, actually, I actually have an ADU question for you because how, what's, what are the, I mean, I guess I, Obviously, I'm mean, gonna have to now go look it up because someone had told me that Richmond was allowing ADUs. What are the setbacks? Because I I live in uh, a duplex with my wife, mm -hmm. and I was thinking about man, I wonder if I have enough space to add an ADU. Are you in Richmond proper? Yeah, I'm in Northside. Uh, I think it's five feet, depending on the area. But there's also quadrants like Forest Hill specifically has different setbacks in Richmond in the Richmond Center, and that's like. And that's like a very localized setback change. And it's because of utilities. The utilities that are routed through Forest Hill are different. Um, but I think it's five feet per property line. How are, so how are, what are you seeing people? I, I, so in my mind, the, the, I'm not a zoning expert or a builder expert, but I, in my mind, I, I had this conversation with somebody else about ADUs. And I was trying to think of what's the most, you know, obviously you want to do a well-built one, but what is the easiest way to do it? And are, what are you seeing your clients doing? Are they just getting a contractor, building it from scratch, and putting it up that way, or are you seeing people kind of buy the, the those big um, those big shed things, putting them up, and going from there? What are you typically seeing? How people are setting that up? Uh, I'll go for I'll get, go to two different answers. One, I recommend carriage homes a hundred percent of the time. Um, a carriage home means that you have a garage that you can rent out or use recreationally. And then you have a living space above that you can rent out or use recreationally. And carriage homes are very easily approved. Um, garage space is something that's always sought after um, because parking is such a problem in the city. And so um, the city is more prone to accepting any form of garage off, off street. Um, additionally, you can add housing to that 
super easily. The only biggest limitation in all of the Metropolitan, that's Chesterfield and Ryko Hanover, mm -hmm. uh, is it has to be a third of the occupant size or below of the primary home. Um, you can't build over a third of the square foot. So, like, if you if your duplex is 2,000 square feet, you can only build mm -hmm. a 600 or 700 square feet cottage carriage home. Um, okay. And then in terms of what I'm seeing the most of is people are loving shipping containers. There's several companies that are doing drop-in pre-builts, and those are being super overused. Well, I'm not going to say overused. They've been super utilized um, because they're turnkey. They only require you to have a, a slab and utilities dropped in, and then they come in and create a turnkey option for you. So there's very little construction time, which in the city is a big that's deal. In and that's in, that's happening in Richmond. That's happening in Richmond. How, yeah. can, so you're seeing the so you're seeing the cargo house. When you talked about the garage house, um, the carriage home, where are are they just having contractors build that, or are they buying the actual carriage house um, somewhere? I, I honestly haven't seen a ton of start to finish products, but what's been on the general accessible market has been um, specifically built on the property. Can you? So, so like if you go on yeah. the MLS and you look up auxiliary dwelling units in your real estate search um, or in your home criteria search, you'll find a lot of fabricated homes that are fabricated ADUs that are designed based off of the home. So usually they're themed against the house. Oh, okay. So they're just basically having that custom built. When we get off, can you send me the um, the um, you said the pre-built? Um... Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, there's probably a hundred different prefab ADU type. Of, uh, not the not the ADUs. Companies. You were talking about the uh, the container homes. I mean, the containers. You said that they're doing that in Richmond. Can you send me the company in Richmond that does that? For sure, it may not be a local company. I'm going to be honest. It, uh, oh, okay. Because there are there are companies. There's three specifically out of uh, Minnesota and Ohio that I know of. I yeah. I, unfortunately, names are the one thing I cannot do when I'm put on the spot. Yeah. I'll throw the name <laughs> out to you in a casual conversation ten times out of ten, <laughs> but for some reason I can never generate the words. Um, but there's three companies in, in between Minnesota and Ohio that produce shipping container style prefab homes where they buy buy and refurb retired shipping containers yeah. and then come do the same drop-in set item um and it's just because uh i mean three to four years ago cost of production was way lower shipping containers are now super expensive just like everything else mm -hmm. um but it used to be a thousand dollars for a 20-foot shipping container and uh so they could fabricate those for under fifty thousand dollars and produce a sub one hundred thousand dollar adu drop-in um which is a huge benefit to most people. Yeah, uh, that's changed, but the idea of shipping containers has become a fad now. People are constructing their whole homes out of them, and so there's still a marketplace for them. But yeah, I'd be happy to share that with you. Thank you so much, and I'll put that in the little lower part of the podcast. Heck Nick, yeah. thank you so much, and I'm glad we had the little. Well, we'll call it. We had basically had a nice ADU conversation, so Heck I, yeah. I I really appreciate it, man. And I would love to grab lunch with you and pick your brain and have this conversation because I honestly in thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and um i'll text you offline so we can come up with a day to have lunch or dinner or something like that heck yeah right on thanks man have a good night thank you for joining us today on this episode of the very good real estate podcast we look forward to growing with you on the next episode